Well, this next figure we'll look at in church history is George Whitfield. And before we look into his life, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Beginning in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, and then we'll consider one quote here by George Whitfield. He said, whoever reads the gospel with a single eye and sincere intentions will find that our blessed Lord took all opportunities of reminding his disciples that his kingdom was not of this world, that his doctrine was a doctrine of the cross, and that their professing themselves to be his followers would call them to a constant state of of voluntary suffering and self-denial. And that, as we'll see, is an adequate description of George Whitfield, both from 1 Corinthians 9, one who became all things in his pursuit of advancing the gospel, and one whose life was full of self-denial and suffering. And we might even see in Whitfield's life a measure of self-denial and suffering brought on his own family which we might raise our eyebrows at a little bit and question the legitimacy of it. So we'll start with the first point, the first question. Who was George Whitfield? Whitfield was born on December 27, 1714 in Gloucester, Great Britain. He would attend the University of Oxford, Oxford in 1732 where he would meet John and Charles Wesley and they would join together what was called their Holy Club. We heard about that in our lesson on John and Charles Wesley. And as we saw in that lesson on the Wesley brothers, none of the Holy Club members were even converted Christians during their time at Oxford, though they sought rigorously to live holy and dedicated lives. And if you'll recall, when we looked at West, the Wesley brothers, we saw that they met there at Oxford, the group, these three men, young men, they met together and their peers, their classmates, called them jokingly, it would seem, or even mockingly, the Holy Club. They were dedicated to teaching, to having Bible studies, to committing time to prayer, all these things they were doing even as unconverted people. George Whitfield would go on to have a wife and one son, and his one son evidently froze to death while traveling to stay with family while George was ministering in the American colonies. And that's the point that I raised that we might question that George did not take care of, financially provide for his wife and child, not because he didn't want to, but he was so dedicated to his time in ministry. And this was time before cell phones and before uh, immediate transportation and such things. While he was ministering in the colonies and spending his money supporting orphanages and other things, um, his wife um, became very financially destitute and then went to travel to stay with some of his family and evidently his son froze to death during the travels. His commitment and responsibilities as a husband and father, they do indeed leave something to be desired. And you and I, us, we could probably without question find fault with him for this. 
But we must also recognize the providence of God and the suffering that many have endured as a result of their commitment to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, I think if we were to consider ourselves, if we had a missionary that were to come in here and was going to go preach the gospel in a foreign land, and we asked them, okay, what about your wife and your children? If they said to us, well, I'm not really sure, I'm not worried about what's going to happen to them, we probably would not support that particular missionary. And yet, whenever your life is committed to serving God, there are things, uncertainties that you're not aware of. And while we're not sure of all the details surrounding that event, it could have very well been that he was able to have the means to financially care for them for a while. And the money ran out unexpectedly. We don't really know. Um, but it is a wake-up call to me, at least, in pouring ourselves out for ministry not to neglect those first and foremost priorities that we are to be ministering to, namely our own families. George would go on after this to have many dealings in ministry after his days at Oxford with the Wesley brothers, and he is considered to be one of the founding members of the Methodist Church. We saw that John Wesley is mostly attributed with the establishment of the Methodist Church, at least in the American colonies, which tended to be more Armenian in their view of salvation, and yet Whitfield seems to have had a greater influence upon the European Methodists, which tended more towards a Calvinistic Methodism, which would in time become known as the Presbyterian Church of England and of Wales. That would have been the tradition that influenced Martin Lloyd-Jones, and whenever he became a minister, it was within this Calvinistic Methodist tradition in Europe, which did become known as the Presbyterian Church. And that would have been an influence of George Whitfield. That's who he was in a, a very, very condensed overview of his life. The second question is, what was the state of the church during the life of George Whitfield? As we saw in the life of the Wesley brothers, the church had developed a gross professionalism which lacked conviction and sincerity. Religious engagements were tirelessly formal and the pews and streets were filled with unconverted people. Not entirely unlike our context today. The religious people of, of Whitfield and the Wesley's days were very formal. They were very uptight. They were, in other words, one of the real trouble that these religious authorities had with Whitfield and the Wesley's is they would enter a church building like this one and they would call upon the members and say, have you been born again? Do you know Christ? Yes, you may be a member here. You may say all the right things, but have you yourself been converted? Have you been changed? The religious authorities of the day did not like this very much and would go on to deny both the Wesleys and Whitfield an opportunity to preach in their churches. The churches would close their doors to the likes of George Whitfield and the Wesleys, which forced them by conviction to go and preach in the open air uh, if they were going to continue proclaiming this saving gospel. Another quote by George Whitfield, he said, The reason why congregations have been so dead is because they had dead men preaching to them. Oh, that the Lord may quicken and revive them. How can dead men beget living children? And one, there are many multiple examples you can read of Whitfield and his preaching ministry in the open air. He would go and preach outside the mines and stand up in a field above the mine and the mine workers would come up out of the mines and they would have soot and black on their faces. And he said he could see while he was preaching what looked like white lines on their faces, on their cheeks. Well, what it was is he was preaching and these grown men, mine workers, were, were crying. And the tears would streak down and leave a line where the soot and the coal and different things had been down on their face. So Whitfield, he was often met 
with fierce opposition, not only in the churches that kicked them out, basically, but also in his open air preaching. And it'd be easy to imagine I've gone out and preached in the open air and preached on street corners. And what you might like to envision, the ideal is I'm going to stand up here to preach and there's going to be a crowd of 150, even 10 people are going to gather around to listen to what I have to say. And in reality, most people just walk right by and turn and give you funny looks and they don't want to stop and listen to what you have to say. And Whitfield was met with opposition at times, although he would grow in reputation to the point where thousands of people would gather to hear him preach. But another quote by Whitfield on one of his open air occasions was he said, I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. You imagine being up preaching because you have a burden for the souls of people telling them the saving gospel and people hurling stones and dirt and rotten eggs and even taking cats and cutting them into pieces and throwing the dead cats at you. And the third thing we'll come to consider, so that was an overview of his of the state of the church during the time that he was alive. The third question is, what impact did George Whitfield have upon the church? Shortly after leaving Oxford, George Whitfield read a book that was titled The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scoogle. And it was this single book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, that served to produce a true knowledge of personal conversion in George Whitfield. He was born again. George Whitfield is considered by many to be the greatest evangelist the church has ever known, far surpassing the impact of contemporary names such as Billy Graham. Whitfield was a primary leader in the First Great Awakening in the American colonies, and he would go on to play an instrumental role in the development of the colonies. Having been cast out of the church houses in England, Whitfield took to the open air and preached the gospel to anyone who would come and hear him. And thousands came to listen to him preach. I remember reading one account of a man who was rushing to go to a town. He was a farmer, I believe, and he was trying to to get to where Whitfield was going to be preaching. And while he's traveling there, he said these dirt roads were so packed full of people on horses and with their buggies. He said that there wasn't any way to even get on the road because the lines were so full. And he says, perchance, he spied an opening in the line and was able to get into the line going into town to go hear Whitfield preach. And it's just incredible, incredible to hear how the Spirit of God moved to even draw the people to come and hear Whitfield. On one occasion, um, while talking with a stage actor, this kind of this is compelling about George Whitfield. He was talking with a stage actor one day and George Whitfield, he asked the man, he said, how is it that you as this stage performer can get thousands of people to come to the theater every time you open the doors? And many preachers struggle to get more than a handful of people to come and listen to what they have to say. You know what the stage actor said? He said, well, it's because we talk about things that aren't real as actors as if they were real. And preachers talk about things that are real as if they're not. And it was a charge against the dead, the dry, the stoic, the lifeless messages that were often proclaimed. Whitfield's response to that was, Um, He said that that will never be said of George Whitfield, and indeed it wasn't. Whitfield's preaching was not limited to theatrics for the sake of attention, but he was utterly dedicated to proclaiming the gospel with all the fire and intensity that it deserved. He wasn't pretending that it was important to him. It was desperately important, and so he proclaimed it as he saw it to be. 
It's, uh, you can go and look and read Whitfield's sermons and it's reported that oftentimes he would take and he would actually erect this stage in the open air uh, more like a, 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 not really necessarily, maybe something like this, but not quite as big, but he would go around and act out the scene and he would present the truth of the scriptures as he proclaimed it, as though he were working and acting out each scene and interacting with the people and with this just real passion and excitement. And of course, he would go on to cross the Atlantic Ocean multiple times over the years. And that seems maybe one way in our minds until, again, we remember the period in history where this was, where a trip across the Atlantic Ocean would take months at a time. I mean, just the number of years that he spent traveling back and forth on the ocean is pretty incredible simply to go and preach the gospel. And then when he got to the colonies, he would ride a horse up and down the eastern seaboard, stopping to preach at every town he came to. It's also reported that Whitfield used to carry nothing with him except his Bible and his copy of Matthew Henry's commentary, which he often would read on his knees in prayer as he prepared to preach. Though Whitfield was a radical evangelist, his open air sermons often consisted of glorious and deep theology. One striking thing to me was when I discovered that George Whitfield would would often stand up in the open air and he would preach on the atonement of Christ's death for the elect. And he would say Christ died for the elect. And that would be the, the theme of his preaching. Now, that may not be something you think would be a, make a great open air evangelistic message. But Whitfield was committed to the reality that he was proclaiming a gospel, even as we heard this morning, that was indeed finished. And there was nothing left to be done. It was perfectly finished by Christ. And he would preach in such a way. Another interesting note about Whitfield is that he suffered from severe stomach ulcers. And on one occasion, his fits had gotten so bad that he reportedly said, a good pulpit sweat today may give me relief. I shall be better after preaching. So severely ill by these stomach ulcers, and all he could think of at the time was, I need to go and proclaim the gospel to those who are lost. And it is estimated that George Whitfield preached more than 18,000 sermons in his life and was heard by up to 10 million listeners between England and the colonies. That is an incredible number of people to have reached, especially in that time. That would be an incredible number. If I live my life and preach and I come to find out that 10 million people heard me preach the gospel, that would be phenomenal. In our day and age, with all the technology and all the electronics and advancements that we have back in this day, before recordings, before microphones and amplifiers and speakers and all these other things, Whitfield would stand up to preach in the open air often and be heard by thousands of people, totaling up to 10 million people uh, altogether. It would be hard to measure the number of conversions that would go on to be attributed to this one man. And many did claim to have been converted under Whitfield's preaching. The fourth point we find is considering the death of George Whitfield. On September 30th, 1770, Whitfield awoke at 2 a.m. with labored breathing. And this was the same occasion whenever he had said that he believed pulpit sweat would cure him. It was later, it was actually early the next morning that that evening he had said that all he needed was a good sermon. He needed to preach and he thought he'd feel better. Well, it was not to be for at two o'clock the next morning he woke with labor breather and his assistant insisted that he should take a break from preaching. But Whitfield responded with this, another quote by him. He said he would rather burn out and rust out. George, Whit George Whitfield died that morning never to preach another sermon. And he died in the way that he lived. 
as one who is fully committed to preaching the gospel to as many as the Lord put in his path. I believe on one occasion uh, he, he was said to have made this response that he could not imagine traveling more than half a length with people without sharing Christ with them. That every person he came in contact with he wanted to tell of Jesus Christ. And the fifth point we consider is how should the life of George Whitfield impact us today? Again, I call your attention to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What we should learn and how Whitfield should impact us today is just for us to note that not all are called to be preachers or evangelists like Whitfield, but men such as George Whitfield are indeed a testimony to us of God's good pleasure to use those who are willing to share the gospel with others. And something I'd like to point out, and it's an encouraging thing, we'll probably consider this again with uh, Charles Spurgeon. So far, we, we have looked at a number of men in church history that were very impactful on the church. And the majority of these men so far, excluding perhaps uh, John and Charles Wesley, were committed to the doctrines of grace. George Whitfield's life ought to be a permanent testimony to our, in, in our minds that such ideas that tell you that those who believe in Calvinism or the doctrines of grace do not believe in evangelism do not know what they're talking about. And I would say George Whitfield here, who is indeed known as the greatest evangelist, this top side of the New Testament, certainly believed the doctrines of grace and it did not hinder his attempts and appeals for the gospel in any way, shape or form. And Charles Spurgeon himself, who's known affectionately as the Prince of Preachers and the sole winner that we'll go on to consider later, the most evangelistic and impactful preacher, perhaps, this side of the New Testament, was also convinced of these same doctrines. And so if you, if you and I are tempted because of our understanding of God's sovereignty to shy away from evangelism, be reminded of the testimony of this man. And if you're tempted to think that those doctrines somehow suggest that we shouldn't be doing that, well, be uh, convinced in your mind otherwise. And here's the closing thought. We all, all of us get to take part in this great commission, whether you're one who might be a voice which compels others to come into the kingdom as Whitfield did, or whether you're one who's quietly lifting up prayers, we're all called to serve in this mighty endeavor in advance of the kingdom that we would like he did be prepared to become all things to all people that we might see some saved. And so that's the Closing thought I've got on George Whitfield, and so I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close this in prayer and then gather together for corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for George Whitfield. I thank you for the impact that he had with the gospel. Father, I praise you even for his individual conversion according to that book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And I pray that we all would enjoy 
the life that you've given us in our souls by your spirit. And Father, that you would encourage and motivate us to go out and share the saving gospel with others to see them come to know the same life. Father, I pray that you continue to guide us, that you would teach us through history and more importantly, through your word. Father, that these things would, would stay with us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.